Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, the one big thing none of us yet know about Amazon HQ2 and SoftBank CEO finally speaks out on Saudi Arabia. But first, the midterms. Republicans believe we must defend our borders. We have to defend the borders of our country. And that country is a country that we love, the United States of America. You get to vote in what might be the most important election of our lifetimes, maybe more important than 2008. By this time tomorrow, millions of Americans will be at the ballot box in high school gyms and church basements and all other sorts of civic buildings to determine representatives and leaders for the next two, four or six years. As we hear each time, it's the most important election of our lifetimes. And is as is usually the case, that's true because it's the only one we're guaranteed to get. So the state of play right now is, in a word, unsettled. Conventional wisdom is that Democrats will regain control of the House and Republicans will hold on to the Senate. And a lot of that is just based on math, with lots of retiring House Republicans in purple districts and lots of Senate Democrats running for re-election in red states. In other words, the Democrats are on offense in the House, but on defense in the Senate. But conventional wisdom didn't work out too well last time around. And statistical probabilities are just that. Probabilities. An 80% chance of winning is also a 20% chance of losing and vice versa. There can be poor polling, so-called hidden votes, rain that keeps people away from the polls and sunshine that gets people out and all other sorts of variables. So here's what we do know. What happens tomorrow in the aggregate will have consequences. It always does. Not only in terms of giving President Trump personal validation or rebuke, but also on policy matters like healthcare, taxes, immigration, trade, infrastructure, and all sorts of other things. So please be sure to vote. Vote your conscience. Vote your pocketbook. Vote your community. Vote for the country's best future or, and hopefully you're able to do this, all of the above. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios political reporter Alexi McCammond. But first, this... There is more news out there than ever before, but these days, it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the ProRata podcast. Joining us now is Axios political reporter Lexi McCammond. For the past few months, you've been following something dubbed the Axios 8, these eight races you believe are bellwethers as to whether or not we'll see a blue wave tomorrow. So where does the Axios 8 stand right now? That's right. We've been following these eight races, trying to show the strength of the blue wave. And as it stands right now, those eight races that we've picked for Axios to watch in the 2018 midterm elections sort of suggest that Democrats are still riding this so-called blue wave, but maybe not necessarily necessarily strong enough to help them win all the races that sort of looked within their reach earlier in this cycle. And these races matter to us because they're not just the high profile races that you're hearing, you know, pundits talk about on TV or, you know, you're reading about in the papers, but they're sort of ones that would only be competitive if the blue wave is massive and sweeps across the country. From your perspective, is there a single catalyzing thing that's changed, you know, since you first came up with the eight? I mean, was it Kavanaugh or something else? Or was it simply the blue wave just hasn't materialized as some people expected? 
Well, it's a couple of things. You mentioned Kavanaugh, and that's certainly something that I had heard from all the Republican strategists and operatives and pollsters I've talked with after his confirmation. They said that they were seeing things sort of shift back toward their direction. They were open about whether or not that would be able to be sustained throughout the election. And some of those, it sort of looked like things were moving in their direction and there to stay. Minnesota's 8th District, for example, is one where we're sort of seeing that. But on the other hand, that race has been Democrat most vulnerable open seat this entire cycle. Now it looks like the Republican has a pretty strong chance of winning that race, whereas before Kavanaugh's confirmation, it didn't. A few other things, polling is certainly one. We're watching California's 45th district and the status of that race between Mimi Walters, who's the Republican incumbent, and Democrat Katie Porter is just sort of unclear because there hasn't been a ton of polling recently. The most recent polling I'd seen was from the end of September, and it was a pretty close race. And other than that, it's sort of just like these issues that we're seeing, whether it's local issues that people care about or the president jumping into these races that are shifting things around. Obviously, every race is different, and there are hundreds and hundreds of races, including, you know, even more than that at the local levels. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to Congress and the Senate, are you able to get a sense, are voters viewing this each as local races, you know, candidate A versus candidate B, or are they viewing it nationally? Like, I vote for this person, that party gets control of Congress. That's a good question. I think that it certainly depends by the district, but obviously, President Trump is doing everything he can and has been for months to nationalize this election. He is mostly focused on Senate and gubernatorial races. So that gives some House candidates who are in more vulnerable positions, like Carlos Curbelo, the Republican incumbent in Florida, for example, an opportunity to distance themselves from this nationalized election and focus on more local issues that are specific to their district and their state. But the larger message that we're seeing sort of from both parties at the national level and throughout the country is encouraging voters to to vote for a person or against a person for what that means for the larger party, right? Republicans are trying to inspire their voters to vote against Democrats because they're saying they're too chaotic and out of control to be in control of Congress. Democrats, meanwhile, are saying that Republicans will just continue to make things worse. So voting for a Democrat is putting the Democratic Party in power and also giving folks a more optimistic hope and vision for the future under control of the Democratic Party. The day after the 2000s, 2016 election, Democrats obviously were extraordinarily distraught and demoralized. But I'm curious, from your perspective, if they somehow don't win the House tomorrow, are they more demoralized tomorrow? And can the party, every time there's an election and a party loses, there's always these postmortems and, oh my God, you know, is there a future for this party? We saw that after Obama won re-election with Republicans. But if Democrats lose the House tomorrow, is there a path back for them? This is the most favorable year for Democrats in a midterm election. It would be unfathomable, I think, to a lot of Democratic voters and base supporters if Democrats don't take back the House when they have so many factors working in their favor, including history, right? Like history shows that Republicans should lose on average between 30 and 37 House seats. If Democrats can't pull off a net gain of 23 House seats in the Trump era with all these factors working in their favor and that they've seen working in their favor since the 2017 elections in Virginia, I think that there is going to be a huge reckoning among Democratic leadership in Congress. Nancy Pelosi, 
should certainly be worried about her job if Democrats don't take back the House. I think we'll sort of see this dam break where the younger generation of more progressive, outspoken Democratic base voters, especially millennials and people of color, will sort of throw up their hands and say, we're not going to just stand by and let the old guard continue to keep us in check. This dam will be broken and and we'll sort of see, I think, a reckoning within the Democratic Party that many people, including myself, were looking for last February with this insurgent progressive movement. Mm -hmm. I think that will be sort of the clearest example of how the Democratic Party will essentially fall apart. Thank you to Alexi McCammon, political reporter for Axios. My final two on Amazon's new headquarters and SoftBank Saudi comments right after this. Axios gives you the news and analysis you need to get smarter faster on the most important topics. In our unique smart brevity format, we cover topics from politics to science and media to tech. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the ProRata podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is a Washington Post report from over the weekend that Northern Virginia is the favorite for Amazon's HQ2, which could mean around 10,000 new jobs in the so-called Crystal City community. Now, there's lots of interesting stuff here, like how it's the Washington Post owned by Jeff Bezos, which broke the news, or how Bezos is probably pretty annoyed by the leak, judging by the tweets of one of his executives, or about how Amazon could possibly conduct a nationwide search and settle on Crystal City, which might have been its single blandest option. But here's why it really matters. Dozens of mayors and governors and other local officials have made promises to Amazon in order to lure HQ2. And a lot of those people are on the ballot tomorrow, but no voters will know what was actually promised. It would seem to be a pretty relevant piece of information, but Amazon has insisted on strict secrecy and almost everyone has played along. So much for government transparency. And finally, SoftBank CEO Masayoshi Son this morning made his first public comments on the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, basically saying that it was a crime against humanity, but that SoftBank will maintain its obligation to what he called, quote, the Saudi people by continuing to invest $45 billion of Saudi government money in tech companies like Uber and WeWork. The bottom line here, Masa followed the playbook of other business leaders who have expressed disapproval without risking dollars. And when he talks about the Saudi people, he really means the Saudi people minus Jamal Khashoggi. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Adam Grassi and Tim Shovers, have a great National Donut Day. Yeah, there are two National Donut Days. Today is one of them. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.